Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. My name is Zach Twomley and I will be your host forever. This is part 7 of a 12-part episode series on the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Check out the previous episodes to get a better handle on what's going on and who's who in this incredible story that we're looking at. I would also really encourage you guys to check out the back catalogue if you haven't already, even if you've just jumped in on the Second Anglo-Dutch War because you liked the sound of it, or if you jumped in with the Thirty Years' War, the July Crisis, or the 1916 Rising. There's a whole host of older episodes for you to listen to, and unlike some other podcasts, they will always be free for you to listen to at your historical pleasure. How are we able to do this? Well, because the fans of When Diplomacy Fails are so darn great. Every single person who listens to this podcast, directly or indirectly, whether they realise it or not, helps When Diplomacy Fails grow. But if you want to do your extra bit to help When Diplomacy Fails grow, I would really encourage you to be fit. Be fit is, of course, that age-old moniker that I keep on using. It essentially, it's an acronym, and every letter in the word stands for something. B stands for blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. E stands for email, where you can email me directly at wdfpodcast.hotmail.com. F is for Facebook, where you can look at the Facebook page, also under the same name of When Diplomacy Fells Podcast. I for iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe so that the algorithm of iTunes knows how great we are, and also so that you get this podcast every week without even having to do anything about it, which is pretty awesome. And finally, T is for tell anything, because we're really not that fussy. So that's BeFit. If you do all those things, then you will take your pride of place among the History Friend Hall of Fame, because you will have made When Diplomacy Fails a much better place to be. I would also like to add the few things that I've yet to actually fit into BeFit. There is a YouTube channel, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, where there's two videos there that you can watch. One is... Five Times Diplomacy Failed in History, and another is Five Forgotten Facts About the First World War. Now, YouTube is something I really want to break into, but it's quite time-consuming, so I'll be more encouraged to break into it if I get more views on those videos, so check them out. They're about half an hour long each, and they're nice, easy, relaxing watching. And another thing that I should mention is that When Diplomacy Fails has a book coming out, so if you want to find this book and pre-order it because it's coming out in January or December, then I would encourage you to go onto Amazon and search A Matter of Honor, or like the American spelling of honor, which looks more like honor than 
honor, but there you go. So search a matter of honor. You can also go to the Facebook page and click on the buy now or whatever that button says, and it will take you directly to the pre-order page for the book on amazon.com.co.uk, what have you. Anyway, thanks for sticking through all that. All these little reminders just help to drive home the fact that I'm dependent on you guys for the growth of this podcast and the notoriety of this podcast so that it gets out to as many history friends as possible. Because at the end of the day, that's the dream, isn't it? Speaking of the dream, the exact opposite of the dream is the audio atrocity that is about to follow and introduce you to this podcast. If it's your first time listening, don't worry, I don't do this every time. But I thought listener Mark just deserved it. So thanks, and I'm sorry, and enjoy. Welcome to episode 7. Okay, wow. In the last episode, we witnessed Charles's plan for diplomatically isolating the Dutch be overcome by the previous preparations of Johan de Witt and his web of ties to various European states. Oh, focus, okay. We ended that episode with a brief look at Charles's kingdom and the intense problems that the legacy of the Civil War and the Cromwellian regimes had left behind. Here we furthered this examination, as well as contextualise the decision of Charles and his court to make war on the Dutch. We open with an insight into the life of one of the most significant princes, and eventually a king, of his age. Let's begin. The obligation of subjects to the sovereign is understand to last as long and no longer than the power lasteth by which he is able to protect them. English political philosopher and thinker Thomas Hobbes William III of the House of Orange had led a complicated life, one compounded by the fact that he mostly lived in the court of his uncle, Charles II, King of Britain and Ireland. Because he had a Stuart mother and an Orange father, William could boast considerable families behind him, but his father's house was out of favour. Ever since William II's death in 1650, William III had been effectively disinherited from his birthright as head of the House of Orange and Stadtholder or Governor of Holland, as well as Captain General of the Dutch Army or Navy, or both if he wished. Since the days of William I, or William the Silent, the House of Orange had always possessed a major stake in the running of the Dutch state. It was a strange relationship for a republic to have with a distinguished family but the traditions and memory of the House of Orange could always arouse strong sympathies and emotions owing to its record of defence, sacrifice and patriotism, 
where defending the homeland against foreign attack was concerned. The Netherlands had been shaped by war, but following the end of the Thirty Years' War and the peace with Spain, a new ideology seemed to take root. One more interested in tapping into further markets and consolidating the Dutch economic base than maintaining a military presence or preserving a martial reputation. The regents took over as this shift was occurring in Dutch life, just at the time of William II's death, which gave them the opportunity to rule the Netherlands without a stadtholder from the House of Orange for the first time in a century. The regents were the Dutch merchant nobility, self-made men who had made a killing from overseas trade and who had invested heavily in shipping, in naval insurance, in speculation and in entrepot trade to derive massive surpluses in goods and monies. This wealth led to power and a desire to accumulate more even while the Thirty Years' War was coming to a close. The wealthy spread their wealth to their friends, creating networks of allies and paying off potential enemies in time to launch their semi-coup against the House of Orange in 1650. The removal of that house from Holland meant that the powers of the regents would only grow. Even if some cadet branches of the Orange family remained in the other six provinces of the Netherlands, the regents envisioned great prosperity and times of plenty in their future, but under such circumstances they failed to reinforce their defences and forgot the lessons that had brought them this far. The regents, led by the Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland, Johan de Witt, never seemed to see the danger coming from across the Channel. The Commonwealth had been eager for a union with what they believed was their ideological ally, but when these curious requests were rejected, tensions mounted, escalating into full-scale war by 1652. The war was a disaster for the Dutch, whose merchant experience and naval reputation was shredded to pieces by the Marshall Commonwealth, with their hulking warships and terrifying presence. As the defeats mounted at sea, the Orange Party at home stirred. Perhaps the time was coming to eject the regent classes by force, and replace them with the family that had served the Dutch so well in the past. The war was not merely a struggle, some Orangists argued, but a manifestation of the Commonwealth's desire to stamp out all that opposed it. The Commonwealth was an extremist, fundamentalist state, and it had to be stopped. A recipe for perpetual war was drawn up, and if you listen to the series on the First Anglo-Dutch War, this is all familiar to you, but the regents didn't want to hear it. They wanted their convoys to return and the money to flow back into their pockets, they wanted to block any suggestion that the infant son of William II could save the situation. With Oliver Cromwell's sense of strategy applied, the war ended, and the regents were able to salvage what remained of the Dutch markets. As if in a bid to preempt the return of the House of Orange, and to answer the failures of regent policy in the past, a great shipbuilding plan was set in motion following the war. Surpluses of money and timber for shipbuilding, so critical for refitting, repairs and construction during the disastrous end phases of the war, were stocked up to prevent the scenes of desperation, such as that scene in Amsterdam in early 1654, from ever happening again. By feeding the martial enthusiasms of the citizens, the regents hoped to offset the arguments of the Orangist party and maintain their hold on Dutch society. 
Above all, they remained wary of the young boy, William III, whose destiny was tied up with the House of Orange, and all which that faction's supporters held dear. It was Mary Stuart, as the boy's mother, that seemed to have a handle on the situation, but her regular petitions to the Dutch States General or National Parliament from late 1654 could not persuade the regents to approve a compromise. According to the Act of Seclusion that was forced upon the Netherlands at the end of the Anglo-Dutch War, Holland was forbidden from ever having a Prince of Orange in the position of Stadtholder again. Fortunately for William III, the restoration of his uncle Charles II in May 1660 meant that this act became void, as the States General worked to improve its relations with the reinstated Stuart monarch. Under these agreements, worked out over a few months from late 1659 to mid-1660, William III would be given a state education, befitting a Prince of Orange. He would be given a government allowance, and he would be named as Child in State, an ambiguous title which afforded the young William III certain privileges, and an expectation that he would one day rule the Netherlands, or at least would have a say in its governance. William III seemed no closer to reclaiming his lost inheritance though, and for the next few months he continued to stay with his mother wherever they went, as he had during the years before the Restoration. Whether it had been in Paris, Bruges, Madrid or Cologne, William thus grew very close to his mother Mary, and his uncle Charles grew very fond of him as a result, seeing it as his personal mission to return the young Prince of Orange back onto the position held by his own father. Charles was doubly motivated to see this through, owing to the help that the young William's father had promised him while he had been in exile at The Hague during the turbulent years of the Civil War. William II had schemed with Charles II, and the two had formed a near-brotherly bond. This, combined with their closeness in age and similar ambitions, to further the power of their own legendary houses, meant that both men relied upon the other, and Charles was personally devastated when William II suddenly died while Charles was in Scotland, only a year after the execution of his father in November 1650. Charles lamented the loss of his close friend, but tragedy came knocking again only a few months after his restoration. In late December 1660, Charles' sister Mary, Princess Royal, and wife of the late William II, who had died ten years before, died of smallpox, just as her husband had. The now ten-year-old William III was technically an orphan, in a British court that viewed him as the exiled leader of the Orange family. Perhaps because Charles knew what it meant to be exiled, he took it upon himself to restore William to the Netherlands as Stadtholder. He was thus enraged then, when, following Mary's death, the States General cancelled its previous commitments to educate or provide special treatment to the young William. Under the guidance of Johann de Witt, the Dutch were seeking to extricate themselves from commitments made to the House of Orange and reinforce the power of the regents a process which looked suspiciously like what had happened to Charles's father on the eve of the Civil War. Charles's attitude towards the Netherlands was thus icy even before tensions began to escalate between the two states yet again for less personal reasons. Though their losses had been heavy, once the First Anglo-Dutch War ended in 1654, 
a process of rebuilding began in earnest. At home, the war had been a catastrophe, but overseas, there was reasons for optimism. As trade continued to boom with the expansion of markets and the aggressive defence of these markets in India, along West Africa and in the Caribbean. It was the fruits of their overseas exploits that enabled the regions in Holland and in the other provinces entrench their position and re-establish the Dutch reputation for naval supremacy that the war had shattered. Even armed with the benefits of its overseas trade though, the act of rebuilding after enduring such traumatic losses was not an easy task. The Dutch Republic had been battered and seemed close to collapsing near the end of the war, with anarchy in the streets and consistent defeat staring them in the face at home. To prevent such a disaster ever occurring again, the first order of business in Johann de Witt's mind was to arm. The Dutch had been caught thoroughly unawares in 1652, at a time when the belief in its supremacy was based on its old victories against the Spanish. The war against Britain had shown its tactics to be outdated, and its ships in dire need of a design overhaul. Rather than ignore these lessons, as some disinterested regions were wont to do, De Witt was adamant that the Dutch needed to improve their military capabilities. Thus, the surpluses were created in shipbuilding timber, and a war chest was prepared. The great shortages in these commodities in the previous war meant that when the Dutch lost a ship, it could not repair or replace it, while it also meant that convoys assumed a new level of importance, since they brought in the money that the Republic's regions so valued. This had meant that the frustrated Admiral, Martin Trump, was repeatedly sent out to guard convoys at the same time as being required to fight the British, a foolish strategy that cost the great Admiral his life. This time, the new Admiral, Michael de Rutscher, would have the Republic's confidence and possessed orders motivated not by merchant interest, but national survival. The Dutch would now hunt the enemy and attack him with the tactics that they had been so bewildered by before, and they would survive on their war chest rather than protectively shadow every convoy. By doing this, and by using their newly built warships bristling with huge guns rather than converted merchantmen, the States General could prepare itself for another conflict with England if it arose. This, of course, didn't mean that De Witt was going out searching for war with Britain, but he was a realistic individual, and he recognised that the last decade had not seen a lapse in tensions between the British and Dutch, but in fact those tensions had increased. When examining the reasons why the Dutch and British felt justified in waging war against each other for a second time, Historians normally trot out a few reasons that best capture the era, so let's examine them before I give you my own view of the situation, based on what I've looked at so far. The first reason for the Anglo-Dutch hostility was Charles's aforementioned distaste for the regents in the States General who had disinherited his nephew William, and who had thus prevented him from receiving what was his birthright as a Prince of Orange. Charles had viewed it as a personal slight that the Dutch Parliament had failed to give either William III or Charles's sister what was entitled to them, and this bitterness towards the Dutch governing apparatus rather than the Dutch people or necessarily the state of the Netherlands as a whole is a large part of the reason why Charles was able to be persuaded by those that wanted war with the Dutch for other reasons. David Scott, in his book Leviathan, The Rise of Britain as a World Power, 
examines Charles's sentiments along this line. The only foreign power that Charles could work up any martial zeal against was the Dutch Republic, whose mere existence was an affront to his monarchical sensibilities. To Charles, as to Louis XIV, it was a political obscenity, besides which the Dutch were sheltering many of Charles's Republican enemies who had fled abroad after the Restoration. To the English generally, or at least the non-Puritan majority, the Dutch Republic represented the evils of unrestrained Protestantism. The existence of so much anti-Dutch propaganda leading up to the war is a theme we'll examine again. But a traditional second reason for the war to erupt was that of the commercial rivalry between the British and Dutch, which had been so intense that the Commonwealth had implemented the Despised Navigation Act of 1651. This was an early manifestation of mercantilism in the British Isles, and it was designed to maximise and protect the profits of local farmers, manufacturers and producers from the more capable Dutch, as well as limit the capabilities of the Dutch at the same time. The Navigation Act stipulated that only British ships could trade with the Commonwealth or its colonies, a ruling which meant that the Dutch entrepot trade was suddenly in danger, as one of its best customers now required a special treatment which would cost the Dutch a lot more to accommodate. Navigation Act aside, commercial rivalry after the First War continued unchecked, thanks largely to the global explosion of Dutch ambitions the increasing demand for foreign goods, and the ever-present desire to make more money. Competition was especially fierce in the aftermath of the Restoration, when newly minted groups of merchants were given royal charters in an atmosphere of overwhelming positivity to act abroad in the king's name. These companies, most notably the Royal Company of Adventurers trading into Africa, which we encountered in the last episode, named the likes of Charles, his brother James, and their cousin Rupert of the Rhine as their patrons. This African company had much to prove, since it had to justify the king's confidence in it and turn a profit worthy of all of its investment. The idea went that markets were waiting to be tapped into in West Africa, but the truth was that these markets were already thoroughly under the Dutch thumb, and had been for almost a decade The only way to break into these markets was to literally push past the Dutch and cut them off from their established networks, something that the Dutch were hardly going to allow. These slaves that West Africa provided were too valuable to the other major source of income, the West Indies with their sugar, spice and everything nice, to allow such potential revenues to remain solely in Dutch hands. The long-examined triangle of pre-abolition trade was constituted of slaves from Africa, who worked the plantations mostly in the Caribbean, who provided the goods that were wanted back home, who then sold on these goods for profit there or further abroad to pay for slaves. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. In Africa to begin the whole process again. The triangle was beginning to be incepted by London upon the restoration, but the inherent problem was that the Dutch were already there, and far better at it than any British merchant seemed to be. The solution, once again to the aggressive British merchant, seemed to be to simply seize with force what they couldn't gain through economic experience or diplomatic guile. Once again, the Dutch were hardly going to simply allow such aggressive challenges to their position to go unchecked. A third contributing factor to the outbreak of the war was Charles's court. In the last episode, I revealed a mostly forgotten fact of the era, that vengeful Anglican royalists had infiltrated higher sections of British society and sought to impose what they saw as the best policy on British decision-makers, This cabal of ambitious royalists included favourites of Charles and his brother James, as well as formerly dispossessed gentry, who had been radicalised by years of conflict at home, not to mention the legacy of the civil wars which had inculcated a level of religious fundamentalism in the royalists that remained. These fundamentalist royalists saw danger abroad as much as at home, and genuinely believed that the Dutch posed the greatest threat to royalist economic advancement. In Restoration-era Britain, the fortunes of statesmen waxed and waned depending on whether or not they were in favour at the time. This was the experience of the Earl of Clarendon, who opposed the idea of a war with the Dutch on the grounds that it was wasteful and far more costly than it was worth, when better trade deals would surely make everyone happy instead. Clarendon was slipping out of favour by 1664 though, and would have to cling tightly to his position for the next few years, In the event, he would be replaced a few years down the line by the more anti-Dutch Earl of Arlington, who also had the task of managing the king's mistresses, which gained him further brownie points. Other officials not necessarily within the court circle held influence as well, though. Sir George Downing was a former Commonwealth ambassador to the Netherlands from 1658 to 60, and during that time he had made no secret of his contempt for the Dutch and his personal dislike for their governmental systems. Downing may have been simply jealous, but whatever his personal feelings, he didn't seem to allow them to get in the way of his insistence on becoming ambassador to The Hague again in June 1661. Up to that point, Charles had been positive that an Anglo-Dutch agreement revolving around spheres of influence in trade could be found. But the appointment of Downing was a symbol of London's impatience, and Downing soon resumed his biased examination of life in the Netherlands. 
With an anti-Dutch ambassador in The Hague and a pro-war favourite in the background in the Earl of Arlington, it was perhaps no wonder that tensions were not diffused with the pragmatism and understanding of previous British administrations. Furthermore, with such men in positions of power, it was far easier for the more radical royalists to make their voices heard. The confusion over the outbreak of the war, and who was actually behind it, comes from the complicated relationship men like the Earl of Arlington had with the ideas professed by the radical Anglican royalists. Similarly, James, the Duke of York, identified the Dutch as Britain's primary enemy, but though this meant he held the same views as the radical royalists, he was horrified at their raw passions for Anglicanism and lack of toleration for other denominations. The marriage between those at the top of the government and British society who wanted a Dutch war, and those who believed that such a war was a manifestation of the Anglican royalist destiny of the British realm, was of course a marriage of convenience. In a sense, the combination of all the factors that we have just examined, Charles's dislike of the Republican regents for their exclusion of his nephew William III, trade rivalry and nasty disputes that stretch across the world from Africa to America to India and beyond, and a biased court and growing fifth column which favoured war, all add up to a somewhat perfect storm. As we saw, Charles's fundamental dislike of the regent regime in Holland made persuading him towards war more easy, as he could be convinced of the benefits from trade and the easy time of it that Britain would have in a second war with the Dutch. But Charles, like his brother, would have been aghast at the notion that the war would be in support of a royalist Anglican agenda that a vast majority of the war supporters advocated. That was why we asserted in the last episode that it was important to think of the Anglican royalists not as religious fundamentalists, but as economic fundamentalists. Every member of the Committee of the African Company that we examined earlier, did not hold similar religious views, at least not privately. Yet these committee members still found cause to blame the Dutch abroad and blame the lack of uniform religious policy at home for the African company's woes. Stephen Pincus, in his groundbreaking article on the outbreak of the Anglo-Dutch War, entitled Popery, Trade and Universal Monarchy, the Ideological Context of the Outbreak of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, was the historian that introduced us to the idea that an element within British society, far more complex than simply merchants agitating for war with the Netherlands, was largely responsible for making the case for war. Last time we looked into this in a bit of detail, and hopefully you are still with us, but all that examining begs another question. If the Dutch were the enemy, and if their republicanism and lack of religious uniformity presented such grave challenges on an ideological level to a segment of British society, then why was the struggle against them so framed in economic terms? Think about it. The African company contained persons interested in making money for sure, but behind their desire for money seems to rest a desire to attack the Dutch outright. Indeed, this was what they had done in West Africa since the company had been founded. The members of the committee seemed more interested in raiding or sinking Dutch ships than actually bringing gold home to Britain or paying off their own considerable debts. Could we even go as far to say that the African company members hated the Dutch 
and simply wanted to destroy them for the problems that the insolent republic had posed to the restored monarchy? I think we could. So why did African company men argue in economic terms rather than argue for war in terms of national honour and national distrust or the strategic interest? What I'm trying to get at is, wars against a hated rival were fought in history for all sorts of reasons, so why did the African company men and the Anglican royalist lobby that they associated with choose to frame the war as one for economic reasons? thus confounding all historians since, as they seek to get to the bottom of things. To understand why the economy was so upheld, where any other reason would have sufficed, takes some explaining, so I will try to be as concise as possible. Ever since Britons could walk, they had been told of the boogeyman known as Universal Monarchy. Universal Monarchy was the idea that a power or monarch on the continent would seek to rule over all of Europe or Christendom, an alliance, normally with the Pope, and thereby accrue vast amounts of power, which could be used to suppress freedoms and control rivals. Philip II of Spain had done it, for example, the claim went, when he had reached the height of his power. Alongside the papacy, he had sought to eradicate the independence of Protestant princes when laying claim to the mantle of universal monarch. Over his dominions the sun never set, it was said, but to Britons fed on a diet of loathing and fear of powers greater than themselves, this power did not inspire or astound. It was based on military power and the ability of the so-called tyrant to overawe his enemies with strength. The universal monarch idea can be seen as the precursor to the balance of power mentality, which would motivate British foreign policy in centuries to come though it would reach its apex before the more modern belief system replaced it by the time of Louis XIV's peak in European influence. Though this is all very interesting and such, where it interests us is the fact that, following years of ruinous war on the continent, a new element began to be added to the universal monarchy idea, the economic aspect. Previously it had been believed that arms alone brought strength, But the Thirty Years' War, and indeed the Eighty Years' War between Spain and the Dutch, had shown that, as Cicero once said, the sinews of war are infinite money. With trade networks spanning the globe and vested economic interests in an increasing number of regions, observers saw that money made universal monarchy possible just as much as strength in armies did. In spring 1664, a momentous publication gave credence to this idea. Thomas Munn's now famous work, England's Treasure by Foreign Trade, was the Bible for proponents of mercantilism, but it also contained a series of arguments that really captured the belief that one could economically own the world through universal monarchy, rather than just through arms. Munn had asserted that, By the wealth he had garnered in the Indies, the very sinews of his strength, the King of Spain is enabled not only to keep in subjugation many goodly states and provinces in Italy and elsewhere, which otherwise would soon fall from his obedience, but also by a continual war taking his advantages doth still enlarges his dominions, ambitiously aiming at monarchy. The acquiring of wealth and trade routes as a means to the end of becoming the universal monarch was understood by Restoration-era British statesmen as control over the seas, 
The connection was so easily made between the importance of trade and the desire for universal monarchy by Britain's rivals that the identification of the next universal monarch was as obvious to them as it might seem strange to us. Despite the fact that Sir George Downing was able to note while in The Hague that It is generally talked here that the King of France designs to have the affairs of the Empire brought to such a condition, by the Turk, as that they may at last be forced to declare him King of the Romans, that then he will undertake their defence. This evidence from a foreign capital, by an ambassador who didn't even like the Dutch, was not enough to convince the royalists of the danger Louis XIV would pose in the future, or of his designs on being the true universal monarch. Apparently, the title of Sun King wasn't enough of a red flag. No, instead the Dutch were identified as the universal monarchy. Not on land, but in the arena of trade. Stephen Pincus explains why. The Dutch, it seemed, like the Spanish before them, were seeking to use a trade monopoly as the foundation of a universal monarchy. The danger which the Dutch represented was not, as historians have often assumed, that they would outcompete their English rivals, but that by using unfair means they would exclude everyone else from trading in the Indies. The Dutch, as Thomas Munn put it, do hinder and destroy us in our lawful course of living thereby taking the bread out of our mouths. Recent developments in Africa and the East Indies convinced the English that the Dutch were actively pursuing a universal monarchy. In future episodes, we will see the gradual shift among the British public from anti-Dutch to anti-French, but in the 1660s, Hollandophobia, as it was known, was more rampant than Francophobia, This had as much to do with Charles's pro-French bias, which seeped into his court, as it did with the direct competition that Britain and the Netherlands were engaged in. The traditional narrative of commercial rivalry is thus still relevant, even though it doesn't tell the whole story, because in my view, were the Dutch not repeatedly butting heads with London and reminding its magnates of their deficiencies, a different universal monarch would almost definitely have been identified. It is here that we again return to our ideological distinction of what it meant to be an Anglican royalist. While nonconformists and Presbyterians authored many pamphlets warning of the ambitions of Louis to be emperor of the whole world, Anglican royalists, with all their contradictions, continued to see the Dutch as the power with designs on total control over all. If we think back to the African company and their direct competition and flagging successes against the Dutch, it is also not surprising that they should feel as though the Dutch were taking over. The fear wasn't so much that they would beat Britain to the punch in trade, but that they would take over entire regions, monopolise the area for themselves through underhanded means, and then prevent any other power from having a seat at the table. Where did this happen most frequently? In the region of West Africa, where the competition was especially bitter, the stakes particularly high, the Dutch possessing the winning hand, and the Anglican Royalist African Company nearly always coming up short. Hopefully you can see the connection. Of course claims about the ambitions of an economic universal monarchy seem legitimate when the lens is focused on the one region of the map where competition was at its most fierce. It is no coincidence that the region which the African Company men had the greatest interest in had miraculously opened their eyes to the 
true nature of the Dutch ambitions and character. The Dutch, of course, were no worse or more barbaric than any other maritime trading power. They were just better at it than the British, and far better at it than the African company. An element of jealousy would thus have to be considered when analysing the lobby of the African company men, especially when one examines the extent of their propaganda levelled directly against the Dutch. The Dutch Navy, it was said, had laid claims to vast oceans and had conquered large markets in the West and East Indies. They were said to be the championed master of the seas. Again, it was no coincidence that Anglican royalist pamphlets could rarely submit the evidence put forward by other companies, or that the most frequent contributors towards flagrant Dutch misbehaviours came from the African company men. It seems almost ironic knowing what we know about Britain's role in the scramble for Africa, but complaints about Dutch ambitions to control vast markets of trade and anti-Dutch feeling because of this was reaching high levels amongst Anglican royalists and their allies. Although the greatest concentration of Anglican royalists were found in the newly minted African company, like-minded men inevitably held high posts in other companies. If the shoe had been on the other foot, and Britain found itself fortunate enough to command such trade connections, one wonders if similar complaints about universal monarchy would have been heard. Before long, the overwhelming ambitions of the Dutch became twinned with the claims that they were engaging in policies and using strategies to command such resources which were not only unfair, but barbaric to the local populace and their competitors. The Dutch had accrued such levels of money and trade goods that they frequently bribed the competition and could hold any power to ransom by cutting off his trade networks should they come to blows. By behaving this way, it was clear to one Anglican royalist that the end goal of the Dutch success was that the King of Great Britain, France and Ireland must not treat of or conclude peace with a foreign prince or provide for the increase of trade and privileges of his own subjects without asking the states of Holland leave. The Dutch then were seeking to control the world through money, and it was a conspiracy set in motion by a people who had used underhanded means and continued to behave as though they had a right to all the resources of the earth. But what of the religious element of the Dutch Republic? As one of the few Protestant powers on the continent, did the religious commonality of the average Briton with the Dutch not play a role in diffusing the tensions, even considering the gradual secularization of geopolitics and the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War? In short, no. To those Anglican royalists clamouring for a solution to the Dutch evils, the Dutch were simply not good Protestants. They had completely lost the run of themselves. Some went further still, claiming that the Dutch had demonstrated their inherently sinful nature time and time again, most notably with their original rebellion against their old masters, Spain. The heroic levels of hypocrisy that Anglican royalists' rhetoric reached was notable in itself, because African company men now seemed content to criticise the Dutch for rebelling against the very power which England had at one point aided them against. Furthermore, this old master was one of the original universal monarchs. Did Spain not thus deserve to have lost its old Dutch provinces, since its ambitions had become too grandiose and dangerous for the continent? Conveniently, no, no it did not. A Dutch man, read one pamphlet, 
is a lusty, fat, two-legged cheese worm. A creature that is so addicted to eating butter, drinking fat drink and sliding that all the world knows him for a slippery fellow. The past was conveniently glossed over because, in the mind of the Anglican royalist, in the atmosphere of the 1660s, the Dutch were the enemy and that was that. In a suspicious atmosphere that the early 1660s produced, where religious uniformity at home was decreed in a number of laws to ensure the safety and security of the kingdom, as we saw in the last episode, it was perhaps little surprise that the religiously tolerant Dutch were upheld as wolves in sheep's clothing, as weaklings with no convictions. If a nonconformist in Britain could be presented as a Catholic in disguise to the Anglican-dominated Parliament in London, it was an easy step to declare the Dutch a closet Catholic nation whose religious tolerance was merely a front for their own popery. All those true Netherland zealots who contended for religion were either destroyed by the Spanish Inquisition or fled their country, thought Edward Cliff, a prominent Anglican preacher, of which a good honest stock yet remains in England, but all the rest proved mere pretenders. What a coincidence that they managed to make it to England, the only place where true religion resided. As you can gather, the fifth column of the Anglican Royalists had engaged in a massive policy of fabrication over the years leading up to the Anglo-Dutch War. It was the overmighty Dutch, the scheming Dutch, the cunning Dutch, the barbaric Dutch and the cheating Dutch that possessed a trade network which snaked across the world. It was anti-Dutch propaganda which fed such views and disseminated them amongst an eager public. It was barely concealed jealousy amongst many merchants of the Anglican Royalist persuasion centred on the African Company. It was the terminal dislike Charles II had for the Dutch government and his extensive diplomatic preparations which he had made in the years since trouble began to flare up again. It was the belief that British trade was decaying and that only drastic or firm action could salvage the situation. It was the claim that victory had been achieved once before and that it could be again, if indeed the slippery and slidey Dutch elected to fight at all. All of these factors led to the Committee of Trade, top-heavy with Anglican royalists and eager for action, to present its infamous report on the obstructions on British trade and the major causes of decay in British commerce. The Dutch were featured heavily, predictably enough, and with the lodging of this report in April 1664, the first of many concrete steps had been taken towards the irreversible direction of war. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 